I've seen it in Star Wars movies, in some of the Marvel movies even, and yes, even in the Lego movie. It's, it's this idea that roots the story of the movie in some ancient prophecy, like a prophecy of a, of a chosen one. And the idea behind that idea is that there's some power, there's some law that's controlling history, causing events, and in particular, causing a special person to come to the forefront and do some incredible thing, like bring balance to the force or save the world from president business. And in the Lego movie, there's this little guy called Emmett. And Emmett, they think he's the chosen one because of the prophecy. And they call Emmett, you know what they call him? Some of you kids would know this, right? Anybody? Can you say it loud? The special. Sorry, I just have to go through that. It says right here, audience must say. So anyway, it doesn't say that. But but yeah, they call Emmett the special. He's the special one. He's the chosen one. And so we see this, you know. But, but I don't want to ruin the end of the Lego movie for you if you haven't seen it. But it turns out that kind of in a poignant way, maybe the prophecy isn't so perfect for little Emmett. And you know, the same goes for many of these movies. They, they kind of pay, play fast and loose with these prophecies, with the chosen one or whatever. They allure you with the promise of the chosen one or the prophecy, but then they might forget about the whole idea later in the movies, in the case of Star Wars, or they might make it sort of moot by the end of the movie. They don't, they don't necessarily have to keep their promises in the movies. Do you ever wonder, though, why this idea of a chosen one and a prophecy that brings the chosen one is so alluring to people? Even people who don't have a religious background. I mean, they, they eat it up in movies. And I think it's because people are looking for at least three things. People are looking for security. They want to know that there's someone, there's something powerful enough, whether it's a God or a force, something that's big enough, infinite enough, and good enough to control the brokenness, the decayingness, the chaos in this world, in our lives, in such a way that he or it can bring what it deems as wise to pass. People are looking for security. People are looking also for salvation. They're looking for some hero, someone to give them hope, to save them from what's wrong in the universe. And if we're really honest, to save us from what's wrong inside our own universe and our hearts. People are looking for a savior. They're looking for a hero. And so when you put the, the, the sovereign prophecy together with a hero, you've got a great combination. And then people are looking for something to delight in. People are looking for something to bring them like a deep enjoyment. The Bible calls this a kind of worship. People are looking for something to satisfy them, something to feel like it's worth looking at, it's worth beholding, it's worth meaning and giving their whole lives to because it's thrilling and it's wonderful. People are looking for security and salvation. People are looking for something to worship, to put their hope in. That's why we go to sports events and fall in love with Tom Brady or, 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 not, or not Tom Brady at all. Or Roger Federer, maybe. Like, yeah. But, you know, or, or your celebrities, your rock stars, your, your politicians. You know, I mean, every four years we put our hope in kind of a... You know, some of us move into like a national messiah look for whoever it is, Democrat, Republican. We're looking for someone to adore. 
We're looking for someone who will save. We're looking for someone who will protect. Well, the good news of Christmas is that God is very much interested in all of these things for us. He's interested in providing security and providing salvation and providing someone to allure our hearts. Someone that we can find satisfaction in and worship in. God is interested in prophecy too. He's interested in promising a chosen one. But unlike the movies, God is really intent on keeping his promises. He's a promise-keeping God. And when he says he's going to give you a chosen one, he gives you a chosen one. And when he says that you have to put your hope in that chosen one, he really means it. God calls this chosen one in the Bible by many names, but one that we're all probably familiar with is Messiah. Messiah just simply means anointed one. It was, it was used as a, a term for when a, a, a man of God would have oil poured on his head. It means anointed, anointed with oil. And that oil was a marking out, a setting apart for a special cause for God. But in the Jewish literature, in the Bible, it came to mean something so much bigger. Messiah meant world savior, king over all. And God used prophecies to predict a chosen one, his Messiah, and he's kept that promise. And he he cared so deeply that we would know who the chosen one, this Messiah, was, that from the beginning of creation, literally, until Christmas Day, he gave us prophecy after prophecy through his people that he was going to bring this chosen one. And he told us not only that he was going to do it, but he tells us where he was going to do it. He tells us when he was going to do it. And he tells us why he was going to do it. He did all that long, 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 long before his chosen one came. And he did all this so that when his chosen one came, when his Messiah came, we wouldn't miss it. We wouldn't miss it. If we were looking, if in our hearts we really wanted to see, we would be able to say, he told us. It's true. It's happened. He's kept his promise. I can put my hope in this chosen one. And I can respond to God when God says, you have to put your hope in this chosen one. So how did God tell us his chosen one, his Messiah was coming? Well, I've used this illustration before, but have you ever used Google Earth to look at where you live? Like pull up the map and just click, 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 click. If you start back as far you, as you go, you see only like the big picture. You might, you might see n- North America or maybe even you can see like the whole globe. I haven't used it in a while. But then with each click, you zoom in closer. You zoom into your continent. You zoom into your country, you zoom into your region, then your state, then you start to see the mountains and rivers near your home, all the way to being able to see now, you can see like your your car in your driveway, which is creepy, (laughs) but that's what can happen. And, And that's kind of how God predicted and used prophecies about his chosen one in the Bible. It starts off really global, really big, maybe kind of blurry, but then at each click, chapter after chapter, book after book in the Bible, Century after century, it just becomes clearer and clearer until it's, it's shockingly clear, until it's amazingly clear, until it's astoundingly clear for anybody who wants to look and anybody who wants to see. At the beginning of Genesis, moving through to the last book of the Old Testament into a little house in Nazareth, when Gabriel speaks shocking words to a poor Jewish girl named Mary, God has been prophesying about his chosen one, his Messiah. And he wants us to remember. He wants us to look. Now, we can't look at everything this morning, but for the sake of time, we're going to look at a few universally unmistakable prophecies that allow us to click in closer and closer 
until the image of our Messiah becomes clear. And hopefully today, if you're not a believer in the Messiah, you will be provoked to consider what God has done to show you that he's a promise maker and a promise keeper. And hopefully, if you are a believer in the Messiah, I hope and pray that like, I hope for myself, I hope for you, you will walk out of here feeling like, I am refreshed, reminded, and re-strengthened in the fact that, that I have a Messiah and I can put my hope in him because his God and my God keeps his promises through him. Let's pray that God might do that for us this morning. Lord, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for fulfilling your promise to send your chosen one to us, to send us your Messiah. We pray this morning, God, that we might see you fresh. That you're a promise keeper. That you fulfill and do exactly, exactly what you say you're going to do. And that today, that might provoke us afresh to fear you, revere you, and to hope in you, and to depend on you. To lay down in your lap. To throw our arms around you in fresh. To follow your promises, Lord, that you didn't only make about Jesus coming, but you make about Jesus being with us this morning, this day, and every day. Lord, give us fresh, fresh food and nourishment from your word. So that Christmas would be about Christ. It would be about the Messiah. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, I, I, I love this stuff. Like, it is such a joy for me to preach on this subject. It is one of the most thrilling things to me. I, I just hope that God does something with it in your hearts, too. And I don't just turn into a prophecy nerd up here before you guys. But it's thrilling. Our first prophecy comes in Genesis 3. At the very dawn of human history... God tells the snake in the garden, who is Satan himself, he tells Satan this. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? The first prophecy about the chosen one goes to Satan. Here's what he says to him. I will put enmity. I think we have that up here. It means hostility, warfare between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice here is a huge clue in the garden, the very beginning of everything. It is a woman who's the vessel of the promised one. It's not a man. It's not a man's offspring. And that, that was typical for Jewish literature. Women were, were never called the ancestors, the forebears of those who came from them. It's always men. But here at the very beginning, it's a woman. Seed from the woman without any reference to an earthly man. This is a reference to a very special kind of birth of the Messiah, a virgin birth, as well to a very special father, not a human father. And then note that her seed strikes the snake's head a mortal blow, and the serpent has a comparatively weak work to hurt the heel, the foot of the chosen one. And note, too, that now we've got these intimations right in the garden of a virgin birth and a Messiah who mortally wounds Satan. Now, moving through the pages of Scripture, clicking forward on our Google Zoom instrument, around 4,000 years ago, 
2000 BC, we see a prophecy for another person named Abraham. Now, Abraham lived in what's today called Iraq. He was essentially, uh, um, we'd, we'd call him an idolater. His family worshipped many gods, but he, he began to learn and know about the true God. And God tells him to sacrifice his own son to himself, which sounds unbelievable and horrible. But then upon Abraham's willingness to give up his most precious thing, his only son to God, God stops him. And he says, Abraham, don't lay a hand on him. Don't lay a hand on him. And then he makes this promise to him. Listen to this promise. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. First, do you see here how much it means to God that Abraham was willing to give up his son, his only son? And see the promise of an offspring, singular. He will possess the gates of his enemies. And he will essentially bless the entire earth. Decades later, apparently on his deathbed, Abraham's son Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob gives this prophecy concerning one of his 12 sons. That son is named Judah. And here's what Jacob, Abraham's grandson, says to his son Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the one to whom it belongs and to him shall be the obedience of the nations. Genesis 49.10. So we're clicking in further and further and further. And we're seeing this picture of this Messiah, this promised one. And what do we see? We see that he's born of the seed of a woman. He's a descendant of Abraham. He's a descendant of Isaac. He's a descendant of Jacob. And of Jacob's 12 sons, only Judah's descendants hold the scepter. The Messiah will hold himself. Moving closer and closer and closer in detail to a picture of this Messiah. Let's zoom forward another 800 years. Now we're at about 1000 BC. King David is ruling in Jerusalem. And one night he writes a song. And it's one of the most fantastic prophecies about the chosen one, the Messiah in the Bible. It's amazing. David says this mysterious thing. He says this. The Lord said to my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You are a priest forever. Did you see that? David, the king, says that God is talking to his Lord. I, I mean, what do you do with that? There's nobody supposed to be between the king and God in Israel. And this is not a polytheistic religion. They don't believe in many gods. But David's got the insight or the audacity to say, there's someone between me and God that, that's my king, that's my Lord. How can this be? And then he says, not only is he his Lord, but he's also a priest. If you look into Jewish law, you'll recognize that the king and the priest were forbidden from ever being the same person under the old covenant. So David's saying something's different is coming. There's a God, but then there's somebody between me and that God who's my Lord. That guy is going to be my king. He's going to be my priest. 
Let's zoom in a little further. Hundreds of years through the prophetic clock to about 750 years before Christ. And we read one of the most famous messianic prophecies from Isaiah. And this prophecy concerns another descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob called Jesse. Jesse was David's father. But Isaiah goes back to Jesse. And here's what he says, what's going to happen with Jesse. Listen to this. This is fascinating. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. With righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. Who will stand as a signal for the peoples and, a, and his resting place will be glorious. So let's, let's, let's think about this person, this this person from Jesse. This person brings global peace. Nations come to him for rest, not just Israel. But notice something astonishing here. This man is called the shoot of Jesse. That's a branch that comes out of Jesse. That's a descendant from Jesse in verse 1 of this chapter. But then look at verse 10. He's called the root of Jesse. That's somebody who produces Jesse. That's Jesse's source. What? The same person is both a descendant of Jesse in verse 1 and the source of Jesse in verse 11. Isaiah unpacks this even more amazingly back in chapter 9. We read this this morning. And there Isaiah says, this is famous. He says, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. Now we're seeing this prince of peace is a child. He's a little baby. But he rules the world and he's called mighty God. So what's our picture look like? We have the seed of a woman, not of a man. We have a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and Jesse. A descendant of Jesse and the source of Jesse. A kingly descendant of King David, but also David's Lord. He's a king, but he's also a priest. He's a human child who's also mighty God. Can it become any clearer? It becomes amazingly clearer. Around the very same time Isaiah was writing his words, Micah, another prophet, was writing his words with this amazing prophecy. In Micah 5, it reads, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forths are from long ago, from days of eternity. This one will be our peace. This ruler in Israel is our very peace. And zooming in here, we have the very place of the Messiah's birth. A specific city, a tiny little village, really by our standards, called Bethlehem. Can it get any clearer? Yes, shockingly, astoundingly so, if you're looking for it. This should freeze you in your tracks. It, it is so wonderful and amazing. 
In Daniel 9, 24 through 27, we see the angel Gabriel. I think for the first time in the Bible by name. Yes, it seems it is that Gabriel. This time, about 500 years before he comes to see Mary, he goes to see a Jewish refugee named Daniel who's living again in Iraq, Babylon at that time. And at the time that Gabriel comes to Daniel in Iraq, Jerusalem is in ruins. It's destroyed. The walls are destroyed. The temple's destroyed. It's dust. And Gabriel tells Daniel this very detailed and enigmatic, mysterious message. He says this to Daniel, the words of Gabriel from the Lord. You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 sevens, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Let's leave that up there for a little bit. Because of the context and the rest of the book of Daniel, it's extremely likely, I don't think any theologian I've read has really any other um, answer for this, that these sevens refer to a set of years, seven of them. So just try to hang in there with me here. I hope you will be encouraged by this. So David is talking in each seven of, of basically a seven-year period. So Gabriel's saying that the first seven sevens, which is 49 years, Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, streets and trenches. Even in the midst of difficulties, Gabriel says, the difficulties you can read about in Ezra and Nehemiah that came to pass. And then Gabriel says that after another 62 seven-year periods, or 434 years, the Messiah comes. And he gets cut off. And that word refers to a, a violent, an untimely end. And then Gabriel says that after this Messiah is cut off, the city, Jerusalem, and the temple are destroyed again. He tells Gabriel, Gabriel tells Daniel that the city is going to be destroyed again before the city is even rebuilt. 500 years before any of this takes place. There's a little bit of debate about how to exactly render these years. Hebrew calendar, Egyptian calendar. But what's fairly clear from the several approaches is that Daniel here predicts with astounding accuracy the exact time between the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which began in the mid-400s B.C., and the public ministry and crucifixion of Jesus Christ around 30 A.D. It, you know, people don't know what to do with this, so they try to say that maybe Daniel wrote it Later, but even even liberal scholars who don't believe the Bible don't date Daniel before after Christ. And when you look at the language that Daniel's written in, it's written in a language of Aramaic that that wasn't around for centuries before Jesus. It was only around 500 BC before Jesus, around the time exactly when Daniel was written. So they'll try to say, well, the years don't mean this; they mean other things. This is just 
just shocking. I mean, God is telling us when, exactly when, Jesus is going to come. And what's further compelling is this, is that the appearance and the killing of the Messiah, it must be followed immediately by the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And that happened in 70 AD. Gabriel is telling Daniel, who's telling all the Jewish people, for the Jewish book this was written to, that the Messiah has to come before 70 AD. So now we have not only the place of his birth, the the ancestors he will have, but the exact time by which the chosen one will come and reveal himself. Could it possibly be even more definitive? We're going to take one more look and Google into our final image here. I think I've saved what's probably the most important prophecy for last. If we come back to Isaiah, we see starting around chapter 42 onward, this picture emerging of this powerful servant of the Lord. God delights in his servant. He fills his servant with his spirit. His servant is on a saving mission. His servant is the foundation of a covenant between God and Israel, but not just between God and Israel, between God and the nations. I will give you as a covenant for the people and a light for the nations, he says. The theme of this theme of the saving servant repeats and repeats and reaches this resounding crescendo in Isaiah 52. Where Isaiah sees the day when the good news of God's salvation goes everywhere. He says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. In Hebrew, we translate good news. In Greek, we translate to euangelion. Another way to say it is gospel. So we might read this, how lovely in the mountains are the feet of him who brings gospel, who announces peace and brings the gospel of happiness, who says, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, you watchmen, lift up your voices. They shout together. They will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. That's Jerusalem. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm. His holy arm in the sight of all the nations. That all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. In Isaiah is this motif of the arm of the Lord. It's this mighty arm that vanquished the Egyptians, split the seas open, pierces the serpent. It's power of God, this holy arm. And it's the gospel of this holy arm that Isaiah is shouting about. This powerful, mighty arm of the Lord that does his bidding, conquers his enemies, vanquishes his foes, saves his people with might, Infinite majesty and power. But as we zoom in just a few passages later, we see the most shocking truth about this arm of the Lord. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being, it fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish. Of his soul, he will see light and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. We've said this before, written at least seven centuries before Jesus Christ took his first breath or cried his first baby cry out of the womb. Isaiah stands as if he's literally beholding not just the crucifixion by sight, but understanding its meaning perfectly in his heart. God keeps his promises. God told us again and again and again and again his Messiah was coming. He told us where he would come. He told us by whom he would come. He told us when he would come. And here he tells us why he would come. Because our enemies aren't the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the North Koreans or the Republicans or the Democrats or the liberals or the rich and powerful. Our enemies are our own hearts. More than any other enemy, our own hearts have the power to condemn us. Our own hearts are the things that we need salvation from. Because before a holy God, who's perfect and just and righteous and deserves our worship, we have no right to cry out from the core of our being, it's them, it's them, it's them. God says, no. No, you need salvation from yourself. And so my servant is going to do the most important thing. He's going to save you from yourself. God told us Jesus was coming again and again and again so that we would put our hope in him and be saved from our sins. At this point, it's really difficult to imagine the picture getting any more clear. What what more could God have said? What more could God have done to tell us Who Jesus was, when, where, how, why. Folks, God keeps his promises. He said he would bring his chosen one, and he has. His name is Jesus. 
And we're celebrating his birthday now. He is the one who was and is and is to come. You can put your hope in this God who keeps his promises, either for the first time today or, like me, you need to put your hope in him for maybe the 5,000th time because you're weary and tried and tempted. When you trust in Jesus, whether it's the first time or the 5,000th time, when you say, I need you to forgive me, I need you to change me, I need you to carry me, I need you to help me. Lord, I, I weakly offer myself to be used by you. Please help me follow you. Please help me follow you as my Lord. Please help me hope in you as my Savior, moment by moment. When you do that, whether it, again it's for the first or the thousandth time, he keeps his promises again. When you cry out to him in sincerity of heart to hope in his promises, do you know what you'll find? You find that he keeps his promises again. And he says to you, yes, if you'll put your hope in my promise, I will save you. I will help you. I will clean you. I will lead you. Men and women, Christmas is about the promise keeping God. It's about hoping in the one who's worthy of our hope, depending on the one who's worthy of our dependence. Without him, we have no hope. Without him, we have another promise to deal with. Another promise that he's made in his word again and again and again. It's the promise of a day of judgment. When he comes to pay back everyone for their deeds. To punish every sinner, which includes all of us. To judge the world and give recompense to mankind for their rejection of God and He will keep that promise. And many will enter into an eternity of judgment that is just, but that is awful. But in Jesus, he's made this greater promise, a promise to take our sins away forever, to take them upon his own whipped back and pierced hands and feet, a promise to forgive us forever, to keep us and clean us and lead us, a promise to make us his children, to be with us each day, as our loving father, a promise to be incredibly patient beyond what we could imagine or deserve, a promise to never give up on us, a promise to never stop his great work of making us new, to make us finally and fully one day perfect worshipers of him, lovers of him above all. So today, let's put our hope in the promise-keeping God and in his chosen one, Jesus. Amen. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, you keep your promises. You keep your promises. We look over your word. We look over your prophets, some of whom died, crying out to you for mercy in your promises testifying to your truth. We look over your word over thousands of years and hundreds of promises and we can see again and again you have kept your promises. You are so serious about faithfulness and your faithfulness and your word. You have not made this hard for us. Oh Lord, have mercy 
again. Cleanse again. Strengthen again. Help us to put our eyes, Lord, on your promises. For you are a promise-keeping God. Lord, may we today live and feast and feed on your promises. The promise that you would send Jesus and did send Jesus. And the promise that he will be our hope and our peace and our help and our strength. Even today, moment by moment, as we depend on him, as we look to him again and again. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, if I might, if we might just say in a simple way, happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you for coming. So inadequate a thanks, but a true attempt. Thank you, Lord. We all say to you, thank you for coming. Happy birthday. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Merry Christmas.